0: All right, Hard Yarners, Uh, today is an incredible episode, we are joined, uh, uh, it was bloody awesome, we were joined by Dr. Jeff Wilson and uh, a fan favourite with uh, John Elliott uh, joining us as well as a co-host for today. Um, First of all, uh, just thank our sponsors, Uh, do you know what as well, I forgot we did not get the Patreon question, so I do apologise to the Patreons if you're waiting to hear those questions, my bad, but... Uh, firstly, we uh, like to thank Raunchy, uh, the beer that actually tastes good. It's um, it's quite delightful.
1: Uh, yeah, oh. you, you, you gave me a four pack of that. Did it you was, like it? It was pretty good. Fuck yeah, it was pretty see, good. That's,
0: and that's that's not uh, forced. It, was, to it say. was it was it was
1: also free. <laughs> <So>
0: that's why it tastes so good. good. <laughs> uh, classic. And of course, as we see behind Dr. Jeff, there were uh, our all trades cover. Com.au, uh for all of your needs when it comes to trades, insurance, or small businesses more so. You'd be better to sort of talk about this. It's
1: small, large, come one, come all.
0: Uh, it's good for the tradies. If you have an issue, like uh, if you, anything, fucking like Delby, <laughs> 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 who cannot do anything without uh, hurting himself or uh, stuffing everything up or breaking... Doors and whatnot. Liability,
1: tool cover, personal accident.
0: Everything. That's the best uh, summation we've had since we started doing (laughs) it. So hit up alltradescover.com.au. But today we were joined by an incredible guest, uh, Dr. Jeff Wilson. Uh, We talk about uh, plenty of your adventures and and persistence. But yeah, what did we chat about today?
2: Oh, mate, we went all over the place. We were in Greenland, Sahara Mm -hmm. Desert, Simpson (laughs) Desert, Antarctica, uh, but you know, largely just unpacking the the three things that make resilience possible, and um, how how do we teach resilience to our young folk? Yeah, bear, bear attacks. Yeah, bear attacks. Yeah, we had some bears. The,
0: that, that bear stuff towards the end. Oh, incredible. Um, but there is a, a little flow state moment I think from about an hour fifty minutes into about an hour and a half where I was. F- fucking captivated so uh, if you're ever back in town mate we'd we'll definitely get you back on uh, really appreciate your time and
2: yeah uh yeah, let's get hard Hey, thanks for having me
1: Welcome, Welcome to the Hard Yarns Podcast I am fucking fat <laughs> <laughs> Anything Chris White says, please
2: <laughs> disregard it 5D is actually a state of it's a unity consciousness That was Hard Yarns with me, Frankie Rose So I'm going to throw it over to your co-hosts
0: Daniel Adelby And Cameron Branch I would do this and then I'd gong <laughs> Free in attendance for the millions listening at home <laughs> Let's get home. <laughs> <laughs> Oil there? Do you want one as well, John? Good. So, but uh, how we going? We're uh, feeling good. I really did enjoy uh, your talk last night. Um, nice. It was uh, it's incredible to actually hear some of uh, that story. Um, and we'll go through. But I almost want to go through your PowerPoint yeah, <laughs> step yeah. by step. But uh, I think the best way we can um, we can kick off this pod. Is uh, how you two met because uh, John is probably <laughs> one of our most popular guests, and he sort of alluded to the the, the story of how you guys met uh, on the barge, I think it was, or on the on the ship
1: at some point.
0: But uh, if we could, yeah, start with that because that's a great uh, great way to begin the the story.
1: Well, e- even before before we met, yeah, officially, yep. uh, Jeff reminded me of a, a story, yeah. Uh, before we got on the boat. <laughs>
2: okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, remembering John's had a camel camel crisis in his life. Yes. And, and he's, he's, <laughs> he's had a mid-camel crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's definitely a different human to the human I met. in Antarctica. Really? How many, <laughs> how many years ago did we meet uh, in Australia? Seven? Six? Seven, yeah. yeah so imagine six, seven years, seven years ago, I've not long come out of a uh, 53-day solo in antarctica which for me was almost like a spiritual experience you yeah, know, yeah yeah being isolated you're in the interior of the continent it's a very different place to the peninsula where we were heading i was uh, a speaker on a vessel mm-hmm. heading into the antarctic peninsula with uh, 101 of Australia's bright minds, and and John had somehow slipped into that mix. <laughs> <laughs> How that happened? I, I, I thought you were
1: about to say 101 bright minds and John. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I think that, that would have been more relevant. 100 <laughs> bright minds plus John. But,
2: no, I mean they are all characters in their in their own right, and uh, I'm walking in, and they're handing out these bright yellow survival jackets in mm-hmm. the lobby of a hotel, and and we're all lined up like penguins going to the slaughter, yeah. and I'm like, man, this is a very different Antarctica to the one that I've known previously. It's so I'm, I'm adjusting to that. My wife, Sarah, is there like, how are you going to adjust to seeing Antarctica with 100 people? And uh, John's on, on the travelator. He's overweight, like he's probably 20, 30 kilos more <laughs> than you are now. Yeah, about 30.
1: Yeah, 30 we touched
0: 30. on that last uh, episode. You'd lost a bit just through lack of alcohol, was
1: it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. With the <laughs> 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 eye <other Yeah>, well,
2: <laughs> But yeah, yeah, yeah. So he looked like he had the airbags deployed (laughs) in the the suit. I was
1: getting ready for Antarctica, mate. Yeah, yeah, he was hoping to get left behind there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was
2: was just prepping, prepping for it. And he's in a bright purple suit with a big Havana cigar lit on the inside of this bloody hotel. And he's yelled at 9 o'clock in the morning at the top of his voice, right, who's coming with me to the strip club? (laughs) And my wife turns to me and goes... (laughs) I hate that man. <laughs> 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 and uh, I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm sure he's not as bad as he seems. And anyway, seven years later, we're, we're the best of mates and we've had some adventures together. Oh, had a I love
0: day. that. Uh, yeah, I do recall the, uh, and you, you did quip on it last episode and last night, but the uh, smoking, what was it, elephant dung?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I hey, think John. John's probably got a better memory of this. I, I've smoked all sorts of dung, <laughs> <laughs> hence better memory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. Sitting on the back of the uh, the
1: icebreaker, I went out there to spark up another one of those Cubans and uh, see this, you know, burly fella at the back with his nice grey beard glistening in the yeah, Antarctic yeah. sun with his little pipe hanging out. Mm. So, like, what, what are you smoking? And he gives me a crack of it, yep. and um, I'm like, "Oh, that's not bad." What, what's that? And he's like, "Elephant dance." <laughs> <laughs> oh, <this>, bad habit. <laughs> this guy's different. This guy's different. Fuck yeah. yeah. Um, so
0: I've <clears throat> I'll, I'll, I'll had a good, obviously, a uh, listen to what you were saying last night, and your whole your whole journey is incredible. And I do want to get into these sorts of stories that you were telling last night. But uh, first of all, like, I want to get into where does it begin? Like, where does this idea that you want to Challenge yourself to this extreme point because I love your your points on resilience building, especially in our kids, um, and you know your, your persistence and the the three P's of of that. Um, I really like that. But where does it begin? Because where do you? You're you're a vet, were you? Or a, a yeah,
2: I mean I, the the beginning point is really hard to to localize. But for me, I think there are just some people amongst us that have this adventure gene, and that might be. That one person will look at the horizon and go, "Wow, what a beautiful sunset!" Mm. And the person next to them will go, "Nice sunset, but I wonder what's beyond that." Yeah. And, th- and I was pro- probably always wired, and I know John is wired this way, where we'll look at a sunset and go, "Listen, we'll enjoy the moment, but tomorrow I want to see what's I want to see what's on the other side of that sunset." So yeah. he, For me, it was always uh, as a boy, I would just disappear. You know, born in Africa. Um, lived in Africa till I was five and then back in, in North Queensland we lived on a, a research station and my mum would just pack me a lunch and say, be back, make sure you're back from the bush by yep. dark. And I, I don't ever remember sort of having any supervision. I was often out, you know, doing my own thing. And then that, that kind of lust for adventure then continued. So after school... I flew to London and worked for a while, bought a bicycle at the age of 17 mm. and then cycled all the way back to Kenya, nearly got shot, had mm. all sorts of adventures along the way and then got this kind of passion for crossing deserts using wind power. Yeah. And then that kind of morphed into um, understanding that some men do really well under crisis and some don't mm. and watching you know, nine of our team of 13 break down during that first 42-day journey across the minefields of the Sahara Desert by wind power, kind of uh, stirred in me a real desire to understand from a scientific point of view and from a genetic and then environment point of view, what is it that makes one person hit an obstacle and just fall apart and they lose all decision-making capability? They go into a panic mindset and then the whole situation is more likely to end in crisis and then you have another person who on the outside looks no more robust Mm. their history might be you know very plain and yet they just thrive in the heat of the moment yeah A a bit like a fighter pilot that um you know the the very few fighter pilots that became aces were just guys that performed really well under crisis but they also had the ability to use trajectory and triangulate in the air at speed and make sure the bullets were in front of the aircraft they were attacking. And that, that kind of mix is similar to to how people perform under pressure. It's it's something you you partially have but then mm-hmm. partially learn. Mm. And that's where the fascination is. If, if it can be learnt, then we can distill it and teach it to our kids. Because yeah.
1: I mean, it's something where a lot of people would look at some of your achievements and uh, you know, just to... Off the top of my head to list a few first person across the Sahara of solo unsupported or just by wind? Just by wind power with yep. the team, yeah. And then the fastest ever solo unsupported crossing of Antarctica mm. um, the f- uh, and that solo unsupported. Um, the longest ever journey uh, ever attempted in or ever completed in Antarctica, solo, solo unsupported, unsupported, yeah. First person to summit the highest peak, Dome Argus, in Antarctica. Which is so also the, the
0: coldest naturally occurring place on earth.
2: Yeah, pretty brutal place. That's f- <laughs>
1: fucking... Ugh. Kite yeah, surf the Torres Strait like, yeah. to Papua New Guinea. That's inc-
0: yeah, And that, when you told that story, doing it with your future son-in-law...
1: My oh God, like that! I, was, I mean, I was rec- pushing him to the <laughs> edge. I love it. <laughs> <Yeah, yeah, yeah. laughs> you want to marry my daughter? <laughs> I was recently in the Torres Strait, and uh, we got our uh, coffee every morning of mm. this guy Dan. And um, I, I leave the Torres Strait and uh, get a notification through from one of my friends on the island. Says, "Oh, Dan was out kayaking and uh, got taken by a croc." We assume, and it's like, and then the next minute, it's like, "Oh, Jeff, yeah, we kite surfed
2: that." And It's like <laughs> what you're going through. So
0: Kitesurf? You same. mean as in? You're, uh, is that the ones where they're holding on to the
2: Yeah, the weight, so you're on, the on a twin tip board back then. So yep. this is a few years ago now, probably 10 years ago. Mm. And then the kites would blow up. But the problem is the only beach we could find was on the leeward – sorry, on the side that the wind was blowing over, so the leeward side of the island. Mm. So when you're kiting, you want to be taking off on the windward side so that you've got clean ocean air. But it was all cliffs on that side, so okay. we had two <coughs> or three instances when we we're up there trying to work out whether it's possible. The kite's fallen in the lee of the island, and you're drifting in this muddy water, just waiting for a croc to hit you in the chest, Ugh. and your, your heart's beating out of your chest until you can get away from land enough to relaunch the kite. And you, know, you just know they're in the water because you've seen their footprints as you walk down to the beach. Oh. And they're big, like 13, 14 foot crocs. So y- you're not going to feel much. It's just going to crush your chest yeah. and pull you down. So, th- you know, that tension, obviously, for me, uh, back then, I was, I was well through my adventure career. So I'd sort of learn how to deal with that. But Simon was a 22 year old lad who was dating my daughter. And <laughs> I, I was trying to kind of squeeze the. A lemon hard enough to get the pips out so I could see what was in there. Yeah. And uh, he, de- he dealt with it really well. Like mm. It was pretty stressful. But yeah. a lot of people look at the, uh, all these
1: adventures as a, like a whole lot of insanity, especially if yeah. they're going from. Oh, fucking coming from
0: old mate over here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Walking> across the <laughs> country with seven camels, six I mean, camels, yeah. But,
1: but, but I, mean, I, I, I get it with. What I've done, like, you, mm. you know, you're insane. Why the hell did you do it? And and that's a drop in the ocean in comparison to some of the things that, oh, that Jeff's yeah. even undertaken. And like, and to take it from that conversation and that idea and that concept into reality. So, And, and you're obviously bringing a lot of sanity into the application of what mm. you do on these things because of uh, hearing you over the years talk about what you've extracted and then putting it into your everyday life. Um, how do you deal with that insanity and sanity at the same level? time of yeah, you, where I mean, you are and what like, you're doing and, and keeping right. that level mind
2: anyone who's watched no, well, hold on sorry guys go yeah we
0: yeah we'll keep, you on. keep us on yes keep oh you bloody legend we're not losing we power on. we're what <laughs> <laughs> Noxy what's your wait wait what's your company what's your company
2: Oh, Western uh, Power. I yeah, yeah. don't need <laughs> any fucking help. <laughs> <laughs> Good
0: work, Noxy. Love you, buddy. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, mate. We were uh, For the listeners, just... <laughs> so we're, about we, to were, we were about to start the, the podcast and we got told by Western Power, who happens to be one of my mates, Noxy, um, just randomly popped in and we were going to get our power turned off before the podcast. So, great that that's not happening. Sorry, carry on uh, so with yeah, what we well, So, yeah, winding
2: back to how do you balance that insanity? And obviously, on paper, what people like myself are doing is is kind of madness but it's it's the madness that stretches humanity so from you know often my wife will say you were born a hundred years too late so shackleton mawson scott wilson Mm. you know on that same sort of resume but for me it's more like uh if you've watched the lion the witch and the wardrobe that magic cupboard Mm. where you step through into a new environment on this side of the cupboard i'm a dad i'm a husband i'm a vet surgeon i'm leaving 14 veterinary teams into greatness in terms of their passion for animal care through a company called Vet Love that we created. Mm -hmm. And then in the background, there's this dream big, plan well thing going on. So I've come up with a dream, Mm -hmm. be it to try and break the longest solo unsupported record that Mike Horn held for a long time at 4,814 kilometres Mm -hmm. in a polar region and working on that for seven years for less than 58 days in the doing. And that's kind of the ratio, if you're dreaming big and planning well, that you need. You know, it's seven years to, you know, two to three months yeah. in, the, in the doing. Um, but there comes a day where suddenly you're ready and you step through the wardrobe, and the next minute you're landed with an illusion, a big Russian transport on the edge of Antarctica. Uh, the plane takes off and then there's complete silence, air temperatures minus 25 is intimidating because you've come from the Gold Coast at plus 35, so there's a 60 degree Celsius temperature swing Mm. straight away and your body's going into panic. You're starting to realise, what the frick have I done? But I think as I do more and more journeys, we had a great question last night talking about, you know, at what point do you push so hard that you get yourself killed? Mm. I think as long as your dream big planning well and realising that most of your life is on the other side of that cupboard door. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's your tether to earth. Um, I think you're managing the insanity by understanding that it's not all your life, it's part of your life. And I've met many adventurers in the wilderness that have given their whole life to adventure and it ends up being a very lonely place Mm. to be because it's by its very nature, you're an isolated human, both in... In the environment, but also in back. When you get home, you feel abnormal because nobody else really <laughs> understands you. It does appear as insanity to them, so it mm. can be a lonely place to be. Uh, so that tether we talked about last night as well has been super important. Uh, but that's probably a long-winded answer to the insanity question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's uh, it,
0: and you brought up something I I <clears throat> really. Um, I really resonated with last night and that can probably uh, start off really the the talk on the adventures, but the building resilience and the resilience character building that you were talking about with your kids and instilling resilience in them from a very young age, you know, smothering them in mud and and whatnot, the photos you were putting up last night. I love that because uh, instilling resilience is something we talk about consistently on this podcast. Um... And I, I just want to know your thoughts on that because it's something you do preach and uh, you had the, th- the three Ps uh, that you were, you were preaching. Um, so could we talk about that and, yeah, and, and why you think that's important that we continue to do that um, Yeah, and I, I think,
2: you know, winding back to Australia's history, the generations before us had serious lack. Like if we think of the, the, the Great Wars, World War I, World War Two, the Depression afterwards, scratching their income out of the ground, you know, dry summers, fires, floods. Mm. That created the resilience that we needed for good people. Uh, we've gone through a period of plenty. You know, it's the, the famines have gone. Uh, our kids basically get everything they want. They don't even have to get out of their chair to get food. You can yeah. Uber eat it. Uh, so we're creating a very dangerous paradigm here where our kids uh, don't get any challenges till the challenge comes. Instant gratification seems to be... Very And I think that's yeah. the
1: thing. You can't ignore the fact that the challenge is coming. Mm. Like, you know, you can't bury your head in the sand. Mm. No,
2: I mean, John's just about had his eye removed by a whip. He, you know, he's a, he's a guy with everything on the outside. And mm-hmm. then in a moment of foolishness by another human, he's nearly lost his eyeball. And, uh, you know, that didn't really rattle him too much mm. because he's he's been prepped and bashed by the environment over the last five years to po- a yeah. point of resilience. Whereas... If we do not let our kids meet challenges before the big one, and the big one could be for them as little as, you know, a girlfriend telling them I don't love you anymore or a client being rude at work. And uh, we have this in the vet industry. Mm -hmm. They have an animal die under their care, a boyfriend dump them, uh, a client be rude, and that's enough to make them suicide. Wow. We have four times the suicide rate in the vet industry than the natural human population. And that's because we have this absolute lack of resilience and tenacity and grit so for me part of my mission in life within the australian population corporate mm. and suburban mm. is to to get parents to wake up and go it is good for your kids to have lack mm. you know don't give them everything they need when they when they want i i've just had my beautiful middle child put me th- through the ringer she realized that i'm going on an expedition in a week but my phone is healthier than her phone And uh, I met her at Telstra and we upgraded to a new phone so she can have my phone. And then she behaved so badly on the way home Mm. that I've gone, oh, fuck it. This phone is going to go into into a drawer and you're going to look at it for four months while I'm in Antarctica. Mm. And that will teach you to not speak rudely to me at any point in time. Um, But if I could just soften and go, oh, listen, you had a bad moment. Here's the phone. You're just building that. That you know bad behaviors like patting a dog while it's growling. Yeah, uh, and I know there are some parents who think my stance is, is harsh or hard, but the reality is uh, we have reared three incredibly tough kids. Like mm. they are they are courteous, <clears throat> they're kind. John, you know them. Um, I could take them anywhere and be proud of them, and that's through making sure that we didn't give them everything. Yeah, and definitely made them wet and cold and uncomfortable. Yeah, because life doesn't give you everything. No, you know,
1: like
0: it doesn't. Um, no. I'm just going to turn your mic up as well, so keep, oh, yeah, keep on going. I
2: need to get. I'll, I'll pump it up a little bit. No, no, no you're all right, buddy. Yeah. Awesome. You, you, you mentioned, and I've
1: heard you say this a few times. Now, talk about it. in our conversations about the uh, massively higher rates of suicide in your industry. Like, it, do you think it's just uh, some of the factors that you've mentioned, but is it like also the access to the uh, the drugs or the know-how or just a more um, more of a – they've got death around them quite a lot and so they've got a bit of a different relationship with, with that.
2: Yeah, oh, John, it's a perfect storm of, of dominoes. Like the first domino is that during the COVID era, animals became really important to people and they put heavy expectation on these young vets who have a very low tap-out switch already through yeah. their, their parenting style and their, their education style. That coupled with the fact that the tertiary institutions are selecting for intelligence, so they're they're picking the top one percent of the spear, mm. and you know not being disrespectful to these kids, they are damaged. A yeah. lot of that top one percent are on the spectrum. Um, they want to work with animals because they've had a tough time with people. Four out of five of our nurses come out of some sort of sexual or physical trauma. So we are de- dealing with people that are already damaged and throw into that mix. their professional assassins. They're the only industry that are taught to take life well. Wow. You know, our whole career is about managing pain and we have the treatment option <coughs> in extreme pain to terminate a life. And they apply that to themselves very readily because there's no fear attached to it because there's no pain. So... You mix all of that together with a lack of resilience and it's a freaking nightmare.
1: And I imagine, like, the kind of person that wants to get into that industry gets in there for Mm. a love of animals. Yeah. And then they're professional assassins that they find out, you know, after going through all the courses (laughs) and getting into the job. And, like, I came here to save animals and I seem to be killing them a whole lot more.
0: That was my ex-wife's exact Thoughts like she loved animals, and yep. I often suggested, "Why well, don't you get into vet, veterinaries and or get, become a vet or something along those lines?" That was her passion, animals, and yeah, she said the exact same thing. It was uh, I couldn't put them down, yeah. I couldn't do it, and so they go in with the lo- obviously knowing, going in for the love of animals, and then they have to take their lives as part of that. Yeah, you know, it's a tragedy and,
2: and I think um, like an analogy that I use a lot, and I'm going to paint a visual picture here for you and for anyone listening is that. You imagine you're solo at 11,000 feet, the air temperature's minus 30, minus 35, mm-hmm. and then you're in the tent, you know there's a storm coming because you can see it blackening the horizon from one side to the other. Mm. You open your email and the grid files come through to say, hey, you, you've got a really severe storm, come, storm coming, batten down the hatches, you're not travelling for the next three or four days, build an ice wall and we'll update you on the forecast in 12 hours. So the next 12 hours you are working like, a little gopher building ice bricks, building a wall on the upwind side of the tent. You're pegging everything down. You get the tent's uh, pegs from being vertical. You turn them horizontal in T-slots so you you couldn't pull them out with a truck. Mm. Bury them, let it all set and freeze, and then you're ready. You go back in at the end of that process, get another email, and it's like, okay, this has gone from a severe antarctic storm to one of the worst we've seen in 50 years on the antarctic plateau Mm. this may not be a survivable uh, sorry survivable storm and the pressure inside your head is increasing because of the scream of the tent the flapping but also as the barometer drops you can feel it within your bones so i look at that sort of pressure build up it's very similar to the pressure that most business people felt in that sort of March, April, May period of 2020 when Mm -hmm. COVID was first on the map. And it was like a wrecking ball. One business would do well and the one next would get taken out. And I know in the veterinary game, we had 140 staff, millions in debt. And the first call was that hairdressers and vets were going to close as well as all the other businesses Mm -hmm. that were ruined. It felt very similar to that pressure and just holding, holding, holding till you got a break. And I think if we can teach our kids that uh, a storm always has an end, it doesn't matter how bad that storm is, as long as you just hold and make good decisions during that period and just control your breathing, don't do anything rash, don't make any decisions when you're tired, you will outlast the person next to you and you will see the light come at the end of that storm. Whether that's a cancer journey a relationship crisis or, you know, a kid going off the rails or a business up against the wall, all of the same rules apply. And I think my role uh, in my expeditioning is to showcase that in the field. And unfortunately that means that I have to get into difficult situations to do that. Yes. But then to bring those home truths back to our young people and say, hey, we can teach you guys this stuff to Mm. a point where you can get those forecasts, start building a plan, dream big, plan well, and outlive the storm.
0: Mm. Yeah, and that's <clears throat> that's it. Definitely resonates with me that sort of uh, thoughts because, wh- like, I'm trying to do that with my daughter, trying to raise this this kid that can weather the storm and see the end in in, in sight. But it's very hard as well. It's difficult as a parent watching your kids suffer, and and you do sometimes get wrapped around the finger. Also, you go through bad days where you're like, ah. Can't be fucked. Yeah, yeah. Deal with it. Yeah, sort take of whatever. The exactly. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm I, I'm conscious of the fact that at times I'm not great. and I'm not perfect. And I'll be like, yeah, just fucking play with the iPad. I can't be fucked at the moment. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm conscious so of that. Easy. But I'm very also con- and very aware of like, and I've been de- dealing with that stuff recently where I've had to teach my daughter lessons. Now she's only five. She's nearly six. Um, so <clears throat> she doesn't quite grasp the concept of what I'm trying to teach her all the time, but. I'm trying to instill in her a bit of resilience as much as I can possibly now as well in the modern world. It's fucking challenging because instant gratification is so, it's so abundant in every aspect. And I use this example so commonly um, and the listeners might have heard me say it before. But like just something as simple as when we were growing up or when I was growing up, even TV you still had to wait for the next program to come on. If you didn't like it, the ads were on. You had to wait for the ads to finish. You had to get the TV guide. You had to find out when you were going to watch it. It was That, that was it. And you only had five or six channels you could choose from. Now they have iPads. They don't like that. Ah, flick to the next one. There's an ad come up, skip, next one. It's instant, instant gratification. I know that's a, a spoilt sort of uh, first world uh, version of instant gratification compared to what I had because of... Generation before me was obviously even worse. Like they they had it even harder. They barely. Some of the generations before that didn't even have TVs. So uh, I understand how sort of silly it does sound, but that's a, an example I'm I'm giving the kids I mean that's, now. That's I where see you were instant. touching
1: on before about you know like the hard times that create the hard men, and then mm. hard men create easy times. Easy times create yes, shit, shit blokes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I,
2: I think the cool thing is that. Despite everything getting easier, that easiness can be used to set up resilience tempering. So, say in a situation where your kid has an access to an iPad, Mm -hmm. the fact that they love that iPad, denying them that at certain periods of the the day will create tenacity and grit and resilience. So, you're using the very thing that's creating the problem against itself by saying, hey, I'm absolutely giving you free access, but it's only going to be from four to six and then at that point it gets shut down. And the problem we're, we're, we're giving ourselves by giving free access is, A, we don't know what they're looking at, but B, it's not teaching them to do without anything. And it, it's the doing without that creates the tenacity yeah. and grid. And, you know, if we go down to the underpinning um, factors for adult resilience, being the three Ps that we talked about last night, so mm-hmm. purpose, passion, and persistence, and we'll unpack them, each of them, in a child, they don't give a crap about the three Ps. Mm. It's just about creating hardship through discomfort and lack. So whether that is just... And I, I think back to some of the moments where I know my kids learned the most about tenacity and grit. It was camping trips where I, I forgot basic mm. items like matches or the mm. tent leaked or we got rained on for two days and we're playing cards in a, an inch of water in the bottom of the tent. Yeah. So, you know, lack of planning then... Uh, helped my kids now but it's not like I was taking them every weekend so don't beat yourself up as a parent mm. if you're not getting out there much they only need one or two memories mm. of a great misadventure as a kid mm. to set that foundation up for them to then understand resilience development later on but if you've got a child that's never spent time with their mum never spent time with their dad because we're too busy getting stuff for them you know they there's no foundation for them mm. for later. They've got to work it out on their own. But, you know, the, the tragedy is a lot of the time we feel like we're doing the best thing as a parent by working like a beaver and, and getting home late, leaving early. In fact, most kids would rather you be home and be present, kicking the footy in the backyard than you say, hey, we bought a, a holiday house down at Margaret River. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not going to give a shit about that when they're 15, 16, yep. 17. They, they just want time. Yeah. And, and it's in that time that, the ability to build resilience happens.
1: One of, one of the things you mentioned is that your mum would pack a lunch for you and you'd just head off for the day. So you spent a fair bit of time quite early on doing solo little adventures. So, And you've obviously dragged a lot of your family across on some of your adventures now as well. So you've had that mix of solo and bringing people along for the ride how do you find the difference on adventures between that solo aspect which do you think is more formulative for you Mm. uh, in regards to the solo adventures where it's really just you against the elements or is it taking other people along for the ride and seeing their struggles and what they're going through and almost reinforcing the lessons you've learned in them and seeing it in real-world application. Like, how
2: do you find the difference those Yeah, ones? I mean, this is a pretty funny story and, and it, it, um, it's a great question, John, but there was a massive shift in me based on a misadventure. Mm. We built a team of 13 men to cross the Sahara Desert in 2009 and, uh, you know, a lot of the guys who want to do something like this are alpha males and alpha males do not do well in hostile environments because... They're used to getting everything their own way, and when the environment gives them a smack, they're a bit like a spoiled child. It doesn't go well for them. So we had uh, four guys, two Kiwis, two Aussies, racing each other across the desert using kite buggies and with landmines, drop-offs, you know, bandits. Al-Qaeda had severed foreheads of British tourists the month before he went through Mauritania. So, you know, there was all this underlying tension. The teams exploded and we had cooks trying to strangle each other, the guy trying to beat on, on a team leader for the support crew, um, Steve Gurney, who was one of New Zealand's leading adventure racers at the time, kind of decompensated, uh, got lifted by a kite, had a head injury, multiple fractures, um, you know, screaming in the middle of the night with a, with a complete breakdown with a kite caught in a thorn tree. and. It was such a hard journey to get the team through. We, we got the job done, two and a half thousand K, 42 days. But at the end of that, I thought, man, I'm not doing the team again. And if I do, I'll never travel with an alpha male
0: yeah.
2: again. Um, and we've always built teams with uh, probably what I would say beta females, beta males, who are, you know, the guy, a bit like the Special Forces. They don't pick alpha males. Like, mm. they're, you don't want an alpha male in your team as a Special Forces team. It's very similar in the adventure environment. You want someone who puts team ahead of self Mm. um, and understands that the environment will pass. They don't have to fight it. Um, Alpha males tend to get themselves killed sooner in in hostile environments. So um, from then on, I pretty much operated solo until this next adventure coming up, Project Zero, will be a team of four. But those four are just incredible humans. Mm. Um, I've got my son Kit as my on-ice partner, and then Krusty Burton and Jordan Pearson, who are, you know, their servant leadership at its heart. They would lay down their life for their crewmate, Mm. and I feel totally safe with that crew, whereas other than that, the reason I went solo was I just didn't want the stress of dealing with multiple dynamics in a hostile environment. Yeah.
0: I feel like when you put put people in a stressful situation, you find the true character of that person, and uh, clearly, obviously, on this trip, which... Sounds ridiculously stressful, like dodging landmines and and going through very uh, scary terrain, I guess. Um, And then obviously the the challenge of it, the physical challenge, would be demanding as well. Um, uh, Yeah, I guess finding the the true person, you can always see it. And uh, if you have those people who are uh, probably built more resilient or have had uh, a bit more of a... Tempered way of looking at things. Um, you're obviously going to be in a better situation.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, we call it squeezing the lemon till the pips come out, mm. and uh, it's a great thing. You know, if I if I've got anyone dating my daughter, I, I try and do that to him. Yeah, and I've been really privileged with Simon Goodburn, who married my oldest daughter, mm-hmm. to be able to squeeze him so hard that any nastiness popped out, and he's an incredibly resilient human now. Like we we set the record the fastest south to north crossing of Greenland uh, together. And during that journey, you know, having tapped out of the the Torres Strait one years before and I had to limp him to the beach, you know, on that one 18 days of brutal hardship across the polar plateau there, uh, he never once looked like quitting. And, in fact, he started a weaker kiter than me and ended a stronger kiter than me. So he was was learning daily. Um, And that gave me real encouragement to go, okay, We can do teams as long as they're people that we've worked with, Mm. Uh, but not only that. This resilience therapy, wilderness therapy, is creating incredible humans. Mm.
1: You you mentioned on the recent team that you've assembled. uh, What are you doing with that team? I know, I know (laughs) know bits and pieces, of course, but, but like, tell us, run us
2: through what this next project is yes well, yes yes before we
0: go into all uh, that yeah let's go to the project zero
2: because we did the media launch in sydney last week and then i went and trained up in the back country and and went off a cliff and got skewered by a snow gum so it's not been the best bloody prep for it what
1: he's telling me he's, so it was going along and he's like oh i thought my leg was stuck on this gum tree you know like yeah i yeah, thought yeah. it's whacked into it and then yeah. i pulled my but like, oh the a bit of the twig has actually gone straight through my calf <laughs> muscle. What? So I, so I just ripped it off. And, and this was in an email to us. He said, so I just ripped it off and I've stitched oh it up. Oh, my God. But don't, don't worry. I'll make the plane. I'll be over in Perth tomorrow. <laughs> like, Jesus. <laughs> what is
2: wrong with this fella? Oh, we got some stitches there. Um, and the, the fella that stitched me up, I walk in and he's, he's like, hey, i know you you're that polar bloke i follow you on instagram i've got oh shit <laughs> and then he's pretty much just started to stitch me with uh no local i'm, <laughs> like, it, I'm looking, he must think that these explorers don't feel pain I'm like freaking hell i'm feeling that yeah, fucking he his finger in there and anyway that that wasn't the best prep and and my poor wife had read on in the media that i was going to be away for two years and i said hey honey don't believe what you read in the press talk to me i I would tell you if this is a two-year continuous expedition what they should have said is that it is a series of seven polar journeys over the period of the next two years where i do get to come home Mm. uh, whilst we move the boat into position so the idea for this one is to explore carbon neutral so Mm. at the end of my last antarctic journey uh, my boots were in basically slush i was on the edge of the continent and the continent was sliding into the ocean at an alarming rate. And I'm mm. like, okay, I'm seeing this carbon-induced... Firsthand. ...change firsthand. My community is the adventure community and the veterinary community. And on the veterinary side, for every animal we operate on, we personally plant two trees up in the Borneo jungle. Love that. Uh, So I see them going to the ground. There's no politics, no carbon debate. Mm. Those trees are in the ground. Yeah. Uh, on the adventure side... I need to get our community to understand that the days of arriving to the start of your adventure using carbon-induced, inducing vehicles, is over. Mm. You know, once we're on the mountain or in the desert or on the ice, we're pretty low impact. You know, we're eating dehydrated food, a little bit of stove, and it's generally man-powered. But the ins and outs are horrendous. Like mm. a, a big Russian Aleutian jet that you could park 50 Humvees in is not a good low carbon entry. To Antarctica and Antarctica and the Arctic regions are just getting hammered. Yeah. So the seven journeys are designed so that people can follow along in real time. So we'll have live webcams on board. I'll wow. send you the links. The cool. web websites project uh, zero dot earth. Mm-hmm. That'll have the le- wi- live webcam feed, so you're able to see us getting brutalized. So <laughs> if you're having, a, having a, a tough day at work in Perth, you yeah, can, you can go. I wonder what Jeff's up to and see me. You know, getting washed off the back deck or shoveling snow or dodging icebergs in the Southern Ocean. Uh, So the first leg is from Gold Coast all the way through the Southern Ocean around the bottom of the Earth uh, and then avoiding the iceberg line and then back up into Patagonia. And then we we clear customs in Chile, enter the fjord lands and approach one of the biggest glaciers on planet Earth um, with respect because it is enormous Mm. and find a safe route from ocean level up to the top of the polar plateau or the Patagonian polar plateau. Mm. And Krusty and Geordie will keep the boat in position, keep it safe while Kitali and I do a west-to-east-to-west crossing. So that's the second leg. Then we sail all the way down south through the Fjordland, through Magellan Strait, out the Beagle Channel, around Cape Horn and then across the Fearsome Drake's Passage to the Antarctic Peninsula. Leg three will be... A similar journey, the boat parked off a place called Sieva Cove. Yep. Krusty and <coughs> Geordie keep the boat safe while we do a west-to-east crossing and um, we'll overlook where Shackleton's boat got iced in in 1915. Mm. Um, so then we come back to the boat and then make our way back up through the Falkland Islands up to Itajai in Brazil and the boat will stay there for the majority of next year. So I come home do some veterinary work, try and pay some bills (laughs) and uh, be a good dad, good husband. Um, And then legs four, five, six and seven are all polar journeys based in the Arctic region. So Iceland, Svalbard, and then an attempt to get to the northern pole of inaccessibility. So the design is so that we can showcase on every journey in real time how we're offsetting. Mm. Anytime we turn an engine on, uh, we're recording that. We're trying to be wind-powered, kite-powered, hydro-powered, solar-powered and human-powered. Any time we're not, you know, it's open accounting mm. and and just trying to build them out. We've got a very clever guy, Finn Walton, in the background doing our carbon carbon counting and uh, we've uh, aligned with PA, POW, Protect Our Winters, who mm. are another young lobby group saying, hey, we've got to do something here, uh, just to try and get it to a point where... You know, by the seventh journey, it will be the wrong thing to do to, to climb Everest, to you know, cross the Gobi Desert. Whatever it is you're doing, you need to make sure that you're doing that completely carbon neutral, and that's possible.
0: And the oh, that's obviously a, a hot topic at the moment: climate change, carbon emissions, uh, the science behind it, and stuff. But regardless of the debates on what's causing climate change and the heating of the Earth, the one thing everyone can agree on. Whether they uh, uh, are on one side of the argument or the other, is that pollution is horrific and it's destroying it's destroying beautiful habitats, including Antarctica and these sorts of areas. So, um, is there also a a push or a fight against pollution? Because polluting, regardless, I think yeah, it's something I'm pretty passionate about. I would like to see like beautiful beaches everywhere. I'd like to because beaches are my thing. I hate what you do. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure you've been on some adventures and just seen shit and you're like...
2: Oh, it's crazy. Like Lisa Blair who just circumnavigated Antarctica was telling me she took 80 samples in a, you know, a clockwise fashion around Antarctica. 80 of 80 had microplastic in. So we're, we're doing similar. We're, we're pushing seawater through a filter and then those filters get sent back with a latitude and longitude to a lab in Sussex to... Um, just work out okay what's the density of microplastics? plastics the interesting thing there is i learned i learn a heap of stuff as i go and I, I i think one of my strengths is that i'm i'm open to persuasion like if somebody can show me that the carbon science is wrong mm. but you know at the end of the day more trees And less plastic in the ocean is a good idea. 100%. And and that's the
1: thing, when you don't get sucked into the political kind of back and forth and you just go, right, is there improvements that I can make? Yes. You know, is moving towards those improvements Mm. a better outcome for myself, for my kids, for, you know. The planet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah then why why would there be a debate? Mm. You know, it's kind of like getting distracted a little bit by the shiny thing over here. Yes. And, yeah. um, you know, I almost like leave people to have that debate and I just set my in place my own parameters, whether it's, you know, for the company or for myself. 100%. And operate by those parameters. It's and just a better way of doing business or a better way to operate.
0: Even if it's little things like recycling correctly as well. Like I have so long was recycling incorrectly. Didn't realise it's chucking shit in the recycling bin thinking I'm doing the right thing you got to look what they can and can't take, what they want you to do with it, like peeling fucking stickers off and cleaning b- bottles and whatnot. So that might seem like the most minor insignificant thing, but if everyone made that minor insignificant little change, that's a big change overall.
1: Is it, so I mentioned last night um, when I left the company for four or so years, the CFO yeah. puts a hand on my shoulder and she's like, it won't be worse when you get back. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of feel like that's the modus operandi that you want for, yeah. you know, your interaction with the planet, your interaction with Earth. You mm-hmm. just kind of want to put your hand on the shoulder or like, I at least won't make it worse. <laughs> like that's yeah, that's exactly. the start point. You don't want to s- contribute. To yeah, it yeah, yeah. I yeah.
2: mean, it's funny if we, if we having hard yarns, having hard conversations, which is what we're here for. Um, I think back to a journey that I did for, charity called the She Rescue Home. And Mm -hmm. that charity uh, was, I mean, every journey I've done is for a cause Mm -hmm. because I know selfishly if I get it boxed into a corner and it's just about me personally getting a record or doing something, I'll tap out. Yes. But if I'm aligned with something that I believe in and I've met the kids involved or I've seen those kids or seen the women with breast cancer involved uh, on my Antarctic Crossing as for the McGrath Foundation, I purposely met those people so that when – got to a point where the chips are down i can't give up because i've seen them and met them mm. um this one was for she rescue home and, and their job was to to bust in uh, undercover and steal kids back off human trafficking networks in the laos cambodia triangle wow. and those kids were as young as eight nine years old caught up in prostitution when i would go to the media to talk about that it was a very like the climate change thing now they they're like oh listen that's a hot topic you know there's so much split of opinion it's it's awkward we don't want to talk about pedophilia and adventure they don't mix it's all Mm. the water and i'm like well no no no, that's where you're wrong i'm the trojan horse yeah the adventure is the trojan horse gets me through the gate Mm. and then we unpack the nastiness and in that one it was pedophilia and This one, the Trojan horse is they love the father and son thing. Like Katali mm-hmm. is this broader, stronger version of me. Mm-hmm. He's almost like the genetically engineered adventurer. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah yep. he's not a cleft palate kid from Africa that's been bashed and got more scars than <laughs> your average, uh, you know, overripe avocado. Yeah, um, but it's that father son dynamic that the press is loving. Mm. And then once we get the Trojan horse into the citadel, we unpack. The mm. climate change, you know, I've no, not seen anybody who's not, you know, doing the ostrich thing, not saying that if we don't change what we're doing as a planet, we're not heading for a cliff.
0: Mm. And so I'm. Um, uh, you bring up an uh, interesting topic. So that one there, for example, like finding you're uh, trying to raise money for this uh, these tra- child traffickers because we're not mainstream media. We're obviously happy to have these con- conversations. That must be incredibly challenging to see that firsthand what's happening and i guess you that's what you're alluding to you you put the vision of these sorts of people who are uh, in a much harder situation and it makes you feel like you can get through anything else
2: yeah and i think for you know one of the keys for resilience that we talk about is, is finding your purpose and that might just be meeting the guy who gives you this sudden light bulb moment i met a guy who who didn't want to be named he was called the gray man mm. and the reason he was gray man he was ex-special forces and he got a passion for these girls so the sheet Rescue Home would pay him to pretend to be a Russian uh, on holiday wanting sex with young girls. So he would go in, pay the money to the owner, and then he would semtex the back wall, take the whole wall out and, and escape with this girl. And he told me the story of this nine-year-old uh, girl that he had been ushered into a room, and it's, it's literally a effed-up room with a rickety old bed, uh, but it's all Besser brick. No escape, tiny little toilet-sized window for air. And uh, sh- uh, he shuts the door and this girl sits on the bed with her hands on her knees and bursts into tears. <gasps> and he puts his hand on her shoulder and says, in Thai, he was a Thai girl, um, calm yourself, I'm not here for you, I'm here to take you away from this. And uh, she said to him, really? And and she, he said, how long have you been in here? And she looked at him and said... Oh, you're my first client. And he then blew the back wall out and takes this girl out and she then was cleaned up. She was disease-free. A lot of them couldn't move. Once they're AIDS positive, they can't cross borders. Mm. So if they got a girl like her who had not been used previously, it was much easier to get her a new home, new identity. Oftentimes if they got them back to their family, they were resold So they would get them away from their families, educate them. This girl became a doctor over the following decade. Wow. And is now working for the She Rescue Home, getting these girls like her fixed up. So that guy became the pivot point for me to go, okay, I found my purpose for the Sahara Crossing. Yep. And whenever we had those guys break down, I would have to reset them and go, hey, you are not here for yourself. Mm. So pull your head out your ass." And get your hands off the cook's throat i know he's pissed you off but if you take out the cook we can't run the team and these girls suffer mm. so get your head in the game and get your purpose back and i think finding that that key person that drives the purpose and mm. you know if i look at 72 percent of aussies statistically don't enjoy their day job that's a bit of a tragedy really you know we need to find what our purpose is in whatever you're doing whether you're selling shoes i I bought shoes yesterday from a guy in hay street the guy loves shoes Mm. i'm like man this is awesome this guy's found his purpose in in a pretty mundane yeah situation uh but that gives him the ability to to work harder go longer than the guy next to him because he's he's got his purpose, his passion persistence comes along the way so I I'm not rambling a bit there, but, I, I, you know, the underpinning for adult purpose um, – sorry, adult resilience is definitely purpose, and that can be just waiting and being patient for the guy or mm. the girl.
1: It, I think some people find it hard to find the purpose because they put so much pressure on it. Like mm. they go, mm. you know, a purpose has to be some kind of lifelong, you know, pursuit, and, mm. and you've just described you can take on these, like, massive challenges with a different purpose aligned with each one. Yes. And that's just the thing that you almost piggyback on, which is an essential component to complete the task. Mm. And I think in that, that's something that, you know, people can take the pressure off themselves of having to have that purpose as such a grandiose, massive thing. Yeah. You know, you're just using that as the skill set in order to accomplish something. So... Um, you can still be passionate, extremely passionate about it, mm. but it's, it's not like I've dedicated my whole entire life to this one cause. And finding, and your, I mean, great.
0: finding your why, finding your purpose, finding your passion. We, we spoke about it with Andy Donaldson, who literally recently just broke the world record for the most straights, crossed uh, swimming, solo, unsupported um, in a year. Incredible! He broke it a couple of weeks ago. So for the listeners hey. who uh, did listen to that episode a few uh, three or four weeks ago, he achieved his goal, which is well under Andy. But his driving message was when he found it tough, when he was getting battered and bruised in these terrible, horrific conditions, like swimming from one island to another in Hawaii, throwing up, like you know, in in the immense amount of pain. He just thought of the people that he was doing it for. He thought of his family who was supporting him. He thought of the people who were suffering from mental health, who he was trying to raise money for, and that ended up driving him through those harder times. And that's the perfect example of his purpose far outweighed his own personal goals and ambitions.
2: Yeah, and he sounds like he's the embodiment of Frederick Nietzsche's quote, you know, those people who have a why can deal with almost any how, and that's really all we're trying to do. It doesn't mean that your purpose your next purpose doesn't have to be the thing you die on the cross for mm. it is just simply something that gets you out of the bed in the morning and if we go back to the japanese word ikigai ikigai sorry um ikigai literally just means why do you, the reason for putting your boots on in the morning and mm. the reason okinawa was such a hard island to to overcome was every single okinawan from birth they they they're fed on this idea of ikigai you know mm. your Your purpose in life they have more octogenarians and more hundred year old people on that island than anywhere on earth so Mm. having a purpose actually physically changes the way your brain ages it changes the way your neurons work Mm. it changes your immune system so there's absolute physiological reasons why a human being needs purpose the okinawans realized that early and they've just built it into their dna so we can grab that and go okay unpack this ikigai there's so many different levels to it but the basic thing is a human being needs a reason to get out of bed in the morning if you know we've all got mates who get depressed one of the first things they do is sleep more Mm. because there's no reason to get out of bed so you know for someone like john his personality is loud and boisterous and vivacious but you know really he, he's, he, <laughs> he's he's exciting to be around because he reminds you that there's there's great things in life and there's yeah. reason to get out of bed and we've all got mates who uh, suffer depression and when you're going for a beer or a coffee with them you have to fortify yourself because you know they're going to drain you mm. they're not you know the reverse of that is the adventurer mindset where you might come away feeling a bit challenged you might come away feeling a bit tired but you're sure as heck not going to come away depressed. Yeah. It's,
1: funny, it's only just as you're saying that I realised when, before I took off on the camel trek, you know, I knew something was off. I didn't want to be the fifty year old that poured out the end of the lifestyle that I was pursuing at that particular time. And um, the mornings, I always used to say, I don't get out of bed till I'm finished sleeping. And I was such a late starter most of the time, and there wasn't that, you know, get up and drive to just get out and attack the day. Uh, post camel trek. Like as soon as my eyes are up, it could be three thirty in the morning, four thirty oh yeah, in the morning. Eye. As soon as my eye, yes, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> <Pass off>. um, <laughs> too soon, Jeff. Too soon. Um, but as soon as that eye is open, um, I, I, I just want to, I just want to get into it. Like I just, I, I was like, why would I waste, you know, another second in yeah. bed? And I, I'm wow. up, and it's like I've got to remind myself to have breakfast because I'm. Just so keen to get into it. And I'd lost that before the camel trek. And it's like it's I found that that purpose, that, that ikigai, that reason to put my boots on in the morning again.
2: And, you know, when you see someone, like, um, get that moment, it, it justifies the madness. You know, look, for me as a family man, that last journey, uh, 58 days in a tent, you know, temperatures on the top of the dome down to minus 55 Celsius, the first 17 days, wind chill, more brutal than I've ever felt. I was crying on the phone to my wife Sarah uh, on the sat phone at night going, I don't know what is wrong with me, but I'm breaking down every day. Mm. And then I would rebuild over a matter of hours and then have to do it again. And it was because the wind chill was was hovering between minus 88 to minus 92 for the first 17 days straight. Fahrenheit or Celsius? Fucking. Celsius. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Yeah, it was brutal. I didn't I didn't know that a human being could operate in those temperatures. So it was only when I realised that I went, okay, uh, this this is not too bad. But to put yourself through all of that makes no sense at all until you have somebody back home here go, I heard you speak on a podcast and you dropped something into my soul and my life's never been the same. I had a guy last night at Johnny's um, kick-off for the Greenbreaker, i give you a little plug there, mate, <laughs> Elliot Insurance, who came up afterwards and, and I'd said on the podium, hey, You know, you guys, when you come and give me feedback that something has changed in your life, you justify the madness. All of those lonely times on a plateau, or those times where, you know, you've had a near-death experience that was so close that you're like, what am I doing this for? Mm. Um, When you have someone come to you and go, my life has had a pivot. I've changed my whole mindset and you were the catalyst. And and Johnny last night said, when he met me, a lot of his last for adventure and for change and for a more dynamic lifestyle, you know, early bed, get up and get moving in the morning and and push hard, came from meeting me. And that's, you know, that's a great affirmation that I'm making a difference in some small way Mm. through the madness. Small way? (laughs) you. You made me homeless for five <laughs> years.
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are very <clears throat> inspirational. And
0: uh, um, the mindset and uh, the, the resilience stuff is obviously a great. And I'm sure that will come back around through the chats. But I wanted to move towards <clears throat> some of the stories and some of the, the tracks you've encountered. Because some of them are what you we were mentioning last night were incredible um even some of the the near misses you've had the the standoff with a
1: bear and a few oh, things the, so the near miss of uh the frenchman in antarctica oh
2: yeah yeah oh that wasn't so dangerous <laughs> oh, could have been <laughs> could have been could have been Ah, oh, Johnny, you you oh. sur- surrounded by the <laughs> Look, come yeah. on you got to tell this one okay, so we're go. on we're on the aircraft and bear in mind uh The purpose for this one was to raise funds for the McGrath Foundation. Had a, a beautiful mate of mine, Katie, who was going through breast cancer. And I said to her, hey, I had this dream last night of building a sled made of boobs and dragging it from one side of Antarctica to the other. Who would you want me to raise funds for? Who's made a difference in your journey? And she said, without a doubt, the McGrath Angels have been... A blessing to me so i reached out to tracy bevan we're really good mates now and said hey you have got this mad idea of making a sled from my wife's breasts dragging him from one side of antarctica to the other mm. anyway fast forward a year later I'm on i'm on an aircraft uh pretty badly funded so i've got sleds i've got borrowed clothes secondhand skis i'm i'm loading onto a, a russian transport and on there is a, a french explorer faisal hanesh he's also a good mate now uh, but he is sponsored by Bitcoin in the early days mm-hmm. when they had plenty of cash. He's got brand new sled, beautiful French down suit, mm-hmm. new skis. He'd been living with the Norwegians for 11 years and uh, he's the man. Like he, You'd look at him and I didn't realise it became a race because he was going for the same record. Only two men had crossed Antarctica solo unsupported through the South Pole before. Wow. Both Norwegian. One of them was my hero and mentor, Bourgeois Land, who held the record at 67 days. And I'd rung him as an uplink and said, hey, I need you to train me to beat your record, which he he essentially did. And anyway, we're on the aircraft and I'm dragging this pink bloody sled with a set of nipples on it. And the 10 guys on the aircraft had a betting syndicate and they all bet for the Frenchman. Now, he, he got caught in the first storm that I got caught in. It, it was four days of sheer terror. Mm. Like, a, you imagine you put a white mouse in a bucket and beat it with a stick for four days straight. Wow. That's what it felt like. You're just getting this rising wind. The the tent we knew would fail at 80 knots, and the wind is hovering around 76, 78 knots. And I'm outside. You couldn't see. You couldn't breathe. You're getting, you getting. You had to crawl. The wind's over 200 kilometres an hour. Oh, 78 knots would be yeah, probably 160 kilometres an hour. So it's a brutal environment to be in. Three kilometres from me is a Frenchman going through the same thing, and he's getting brutalised. And uh, anyway, lot to cut a long story short, the storm ends, I get moving and go into a crevasse field that is just beyond measure. It took me two weeks to pick my way through it, During that time, Faisal, the Frenchman, hovered behind, took him longer to recover, and then he came into the crevasse field, felt very unsafe, saw some of the bridges I'd crossed, felt I was taking too high risks, and got a lift from a a vehicle around the outside to the top of the the, uh, plateau. Now, at the two-week mark, Uh, I start getting a bit of wind and I kite out of the crevasses and I see this red tent on the horizon. And I'd got a text the night before from Faisal saying, hey, come visit me on your way past. He'd lost his unsupported status, Mm -hmm. so it now is no longer a race. I was the only guy unsupported. As I'm approaching the tent, I start seeing that it's getting buffeted and thrown around and realise he's going to be under stress again because there's another storm coming. Yep, Flick back in my mind to a conversation in the aircraft as we're flying out where he's he's yelled at me over the sound of the aircraft, do you have any movies? And I'm going, what? And he said, do you have any movies? And I said, yeah, I've got a hard drive with four movies on it. He's like, four movies? That's one storm. You won't last. Let me... Let me download you some movies. So I gave him a hard drive and he dumped about 120 movies on it. Yeah. And then he yells over the Echo, Do you want porno? And I'm like, <laughs> What? And he's yelling, we've got four scientists in front of us. And they could hear this word porno, which has a habit of making people turn their heads. <laughs> and they're all turning on don't, don't freaking yell porno. I'm, like, I'm trying to be a serious explorer here. Yeah. And he's like, Do you want porno? And I'm like, Why would I want porno?
1: Because you've got to and Sled shaped like a penis. Pear- <laughs> 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 yeah, that's what it was.
2: But he's like, he, he looked at me confused, and he said, oh, "How do you deal with stress?" And I'm like, "Stress? Nobody's jerking off because of stress." And he's like, "No, no, no. We're French. That's how we deal with stress." And anyway, I said, "I don't think I his deal with it that way." And then anyway, I, as I'm approaching this tent on the polar plateau, I'm thinking, "Shit, I hope he's not stressed." <laughs> <laughs> and then I ended up doing an L-shaped turn and never saw him. And I, I never saw a human being for 53 days. So uh, the thought of unzipping a tent and finding a stressed <laughs> friendship was too much. <laughs> that could be the greatest story I've heard on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, that's fucking incredible. Um, obviously not a near – well, that is a near miss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. a near miss. That's definitely a, a near miss. Bounce off the side of your face. <laughs> uh, but uh, obviously like crevasses, um, they must be – that's a scary um, yeah.
2: thing. That's, they're, they're constantly near misses, I guess. Yeah, terrifying. And I, 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 was, I lost one of my mentors here before last, uh, Dixie Danzakura, probably the only guy who's kited more mileage than me. Uh, connected to a kite on a on sand, ocean or ice. So j- j- for the listeners who probably don't <coughs> get
0: what you're saying when you're kiting, you're talking about having a, like a big parachute kite pulling you along on a
2: sled and or a buggy if you're in the Sahara Desert. Yeah, wrong? I mean, you're, you're on skis with a hook that the kite's hooked into and yep. then the sleds are connected to your back. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dixie was guiding some clients in Greenland and I know the position because Simon and I, came down off this slope we had big kites up we were moving pretty fast like 20k that's probably what saved us but the the light was really poor and then i just felt a bump i dropped down about a foot and realized that i was on the cap of a massive crevasse like i'm talking probably 200 meters wide at the mouth and once you're on it there's if you stop you're going to increase the downward force and more likely it's going to collapse the ice in that region was about three kilometers thick so if it's 200 <sighs> metres wide, you could fall for a K before you hit the deck. And uh, anyway, and then I'm yelling to Simon, Cruvas, but he's already on it behind me before he can. Yeah. So so now we've got the weight of two humans and two sleds. So combined weight of over probably 300, 400 kilos. Mm. And I'm just whining the kite trying to get it to go fast and then hit the other side, get on good ice again. And literally the next minute, boom, I'm on another one and – Okay, okay, we survived the first, let's just push hard. Got to the other other side, dropped the kites and went, holy crap, we never saw them coming. Mm. That's where Dixie died. So he he had pitched a tent and had the clients in there. They'd run out of water and he wasn't roped up. He said, hey, I'll just go get some more ice and took two steps outside the tent, went through a cap. Uh, Because obviously with boots on, your your pressure is much higher per square inch. Mm, And they lowered a rope 80 metres, couldn't even see the bottom. So he's still there. So for me, you know, you see someone who's more experienced than you, he's been in the game a longer time, probably got a better skill set, and he's gone. So, you know, you, you're not tricking yourself that you're here through anything but divine intervention at that point. That's uh, that's very scary. And so uh, crevasses, are there just cracks in the
0: ice sheet? That
2: yeah, when, when ice goes from a high point to a low point, it when it – when it goes through a convex bend, it, it'll, it'll compress inwards and the cracks close. But then if there's a rock feature, or generally it's when it's meeting the coast, it'll bend, concave, and then everything opens up. Mm-hmm. And then snow will get pushed in. And you don't know whether that bridge is <gasps> two inches or two kilometres thick because mm-hmm. you just can't tell. But you can tell you've gone from blue ice to, to a snow cap. And uh, on the last journey I had 42 crevasses that I crossed in two hours and one time I did a baseball sled, slide right at the edge and the, went, uh, the sleds went past me and onto the cap and uh, I, they would have pulled me in backwards if the, the snow cap had given the bridge. Wow. So I disconnected the kite, took my skis off and then put a foot onto the cap thinking if the sleds are there then it's got to be thick my boot went straight through into blue ice. It was probably six inches thick, sort of crumbly snow. And at that point, I just pulled hand over hand and got the sleds off the cap. But you realise that, you know, it's, it's only only one mistake in those instances and you're mm. not coming home because, you know, the difference with the next journey, we've got a lot of crevasses to cross, but we're, we're roped together, you're on skis, we've got a lot more knowledge now and it's going to be much more controlled.
1: Because you mentioned um, a story to me a few years ago of when you were training for uh, what happens in, in the event you, you go down one and, uh, and you ended up in a scenario where your instructor went down.
2: Yeah, I mean this, this girl is an amazing girl. So no, no woman that I know summited Everest more. Lydia Brady, first female at the age of 19 to summit Everest without oxygen. And her story, uh, she's written a book called The Coming Down Is Easy. Uh, or the going up is easy. Yeah, the going up is easy because she she got to the top of Everest and was the only woman to ever do it uh, without oxygen. But there was no one there. Everyone turned back and she was pig-headed and said, no, I'm going. So there was no one there to to verify her ascension. Mm. So she took a photo, but the, the free it was back in the film days, and it was 89. Mm. Um, the film broke on the way down and her Kiwi team turned on her when she got home. So she went through a really struggle. Mm. Anyway, finally somebody in, a, in one of the years where there was a lot of melting on the top of Everest pulled a um, neckerchief out with her name tag on it and she'd forgotten, obviously in a low oxygen state, that she'd lost it up there, yeah. but it proved that she'd summited and she's now one of the most recognised climbers on earth. Mm. But I uplinked to her and said, hey Lydia, you probably don't know me, but I've got this crazy plan to climb the Somo Becken Glacier, one of the worst glaciers on the Antarctic coast, um, get to the plateau, cross the plateau, go through the South Pole, come down the other side. I need you to upskill me in crevasse travel. And she's like, yeah, sure, come come over to New Zealand. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) We'll take a chopper and we'll rope together. She's crossed the Kumbu Icefall at the base of uh, Everest 16 times at this point. She's probably crossed it, double that now. Wow teaches me everything we land and the chopper literally puts one skid on the snow and takes off my first boot sets off a small avalanche to our right and lydia looks at me and goes shit the snow quality is terrible you rope to me and she swears like a sailor she goes don't you fucking move um you you rope to me you do what i say you step where i step Mm, this is life or death life or death and every step we're finding little slabs going left and right down this cornice finally get to a hut on the top of the glacier and we spent the next day bound by a storm and she just taught me everything in theory. So I had the knowledge in theory to save someone if they fell into a crevasse, but it had never been tested. It was book knowledge learned in the hut the day before. Mm. The next day it's a bluebird day. We go outside the ice. The snow is has frozen overnight, so it's nice and stable. And we start walking along this cornice. So if you imagine the hut is on the, on a rock promontory, a bit a bit like the Lion King rock, and mm. then we're walking along that edge, looking for a cornice that's bending off. And there's a, a cornice about the size of a football field. We're walking along the top. I'm roped to her with about thirty meters of rope, with knots every six meters, and. There's a big crack behind me and in the valley behind us, this whole slab's come away and I'm like looking at it going, holy shit, that thing, mm. will it get to us? No, 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 we're safe. We're high enough, the avalanche isn't going to get to us. Next minute, I'm on my side getting pulled down along the corners and I thought Lydia was pulling me in, trying to teach me to stay focused because I turned to look at this avalanche and I look and she's gone. She's disappeared. Fuck. She's fallen into a crevasse and is falling to a death, pulling me with her. And I roll onto my guts, jamming an ice axe. It's just not holding. And then I roll under my back, kick my feet, in, and finally break a fall. Fuck. And, I, and I'm probably 15 metres from the crevasse mouth when I break it. And then I have to just go through in my mind, what do I do to save this woman now? She's hanging in the pit, and she's got her skis on, her pack on, and she's terrified because she thinks I'm going to panic and cut the rope. Yeah. And I managed to dig a T-slot on either side, put skis in and then do what we call prasics, which connect to the main rope. And in the textbooks, it's like, okay, you get your partner secure and then you detach and put a prasic onto the main rope and slide up on your belly to the hole Mm -hmm. to just check if they've got a broken limb or if they can Mm self-assist. I'm halfway there and she goes, I'm hearing a lot, I'm feeling a lot of fucking movement up there. (laughs) You better not be detached from that anchor. And I'm like... Oh, no. no, not at all. So I'm backing up, backing up, and then I reattached to the anchor because she just didn't trust that a novice would, would have enough know-how to build an anchor to save her life. Yep. Anyway, for the next hour and a half, I sat there with her swearing and cursing because she's got to – imagine she's got to come up, but the rope's cut through sideways. Mm. So she comes up to the point where the rope is free, and she's prussicking up, which is where you put a knot, slide it up, put your boot in it, stand in that, slide the next one up, Bring your belly up. So it's a very long process. Long process. You're making inches every five minutes. Yeah. And then when you get to the point where it's cut through, you've got to then burrow like a gopher and you've got s- snowpack falling in above your head. Finally, she gets out. And for the last 20 minutes, I'm watching a crack develop along the whole length of the cornice. So we've got a football field of snow hanging on our left and this crack is going from her position directly under my ass, and then out behind and I'm realising that the, her movement is dislodging the whole slab. If she doesn't get out, soon we're all going to go. You're both gone. Yeah, both gone. It would have been about a 400 metre fall. So you're not surviving that. Anyway, she gets out and she's exhausted and lays down frontwards and I'm going, Lydia, Lydia. And I uh, said, what the fuck? And then I look under, under her armpit. I go, just look under your armpit and tell me that's not important. She looks under and then follows the crack line to me and goes, shit, 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 move uphill, move uphill. So we both shimmy uphill to get away from the crack.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but, I mean, she was rattled. I, I, I remember she basically said, listen, you do not need any more training. From what I just saw, you're going to be fine. Let's get an airlift out. So we got airlifted out and we're back in Wanaka at a Japanese bar, two Asahi's. And this is one of the toughest women I've ever campaigned with. And she looks at me with tears in her eyes and says, you know, when I first met you, you struck me as someone who wanted to die. Like you're going into an arena where you're going to get yourself killed. And then having seen you operate under pressure today, you're going to be fine. I have no fear for you at all. And I've just gone, well... That was a bit of a shit show, but it's a good report at the end of the end of the story. <laughs> Fucking <laughs> oath no. man! That, that's, it's funny when you get those. That man. was gets gripping.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's
1: when you get that. Uh, I love what you you say. You know that uh, that uplinking and um, it's something that I used to apply to the, the camel trek. You know, I had no experience with animals or anything like this, so um, you kind of taught us that it was okay to just make that random call out of the blue to the best person that you possibly could. Um, and my first call was uh, first call was to a guy over uh, Russell Osborne over in uh, Lakes Entrance, Victoria, and so I just looked through. Wh- this guy had done a six and a half thousand kilometre camel track around Australia. Pick up the phone. He was like, "Yeah, no dramas. Come over. That's I'll incredible. show you what I do, you know. Show you what I know." And then I had that moment uh, throughout my training where eventually he goes, "Look, you're ready. There's nothing more I can." to teach you the only thing stopping you going now is you and to Mm. get that vote of confidence from the people that you've gone to is like that final little okay because you're never going to say it to yourself or you you might call it too early and you know getting that uh, that third party reinforcement from these guys is great yeah
2: but also getting young people to realize hey with google now Mm. You, if you've got a dream in mind, find the best person in the world yeah and don't limit it and then if they don't want to help, you go to the second best person in the world and mm. then the third until finally someone you meet is is like I know when when people want to uplink to me, uh, it makes my day. I want to pass that information yeah. I don't want to take it to my grave like everything I've learned if I can pass that on and someone can do better than me that is phenomenal and that's what Boland did it's what Lydia Brady did you know everybody that I've uplinked to. Uh, it's almost like you're giving them a USB and saying, listen, put all your data on this and yeah. then boom, it's going in my head. Well, the, they have a blueprint to success in whatever you they're trying to achieve, you've, they've done,
0: uh, you're trying to do the same thing. So if they've got the information, they've got the data, as you said, like, fucking, why wouldn't you use it? Yeah. I, I think was it, uh, it might have been you guys we were talking to prior to this. This is a podcast, you know, we're trying to build a podcast. The biggest podcast in the world. Just look at what they're doing. They've got the blueprint to success. Copy what they're doing. And if you can do it anywhere near as good, you're going to have success. So uh, I, I love that sort of uplinking idea. Yeah. yeah is that something
1: you're focused on more now, like leaving that legacy as opposed to living it as much like you, you what are you now, 40, 53?
2: Yeah, 53. I mean, I, I kind of feel like, uh, you know, part of the whole explorer mindset is you, you've still got that boy within alive and well so that stops you feeling like an old bloke anyway yeah, and, yeah. Peter uh, the lega- i feel like the legacy thing is a bit of an old man's thing to so, say you know i'm packing my boots up i don't feel that way i feel like i'm learning every day like we've been sailing this steel hull 22 year old boat offshore Every storm that comes through, little old Nanook's heading out and all the other boats are coming in. The Seaway Tower, there we go, VMR, VMR. Southport, this is Nanook. And they're like, "Uh, you know there's bad weather coming in? Yeah, exactly. We're going back out there and I'm vomiting my guts up, going, what the hell am I doing out here? This is not my environment. Uh, But over the last six months, I've built this tenacity to seasickness that I didn't have before. I understand how the boat behaves in storms. I'm still subjugating myself to hardship. Mm. So, I think once you start going to that, you know, I'm going to leave a legacy, um, that's the beginning of you putting your boots up. So, mm. I, I'm definitely not there, but I do understand what you're saying, John. There is a point where you start to focus more on that. But I, I still feel it's active. Like I'm still active adventuring. And that's what's so exciting about what we're talking about. It's not like um, Ian Thorpe talking to you and saying, hey, you can do this. And you look at his feet, they're size fucking 15. Yeah. And I'm like, my feet are nines. How am I going to create as much propulsion as this superhuman? Mm. I'm talking to you as an 85-kilo middle-aged Australian male with a lot of talent. I tell you, I skied backwards into a tree last week as evidence of that. (laughs) But I have more (laughs) persistence, tenacity and grit than the average person.
1: Because you you were 50 when you did the longest solo unsupported.
2: Yeah, started at 49, finished at 50. Oh, yeah. No, it's was 49, 49. So, yeah. you know, your body definitely uh, doesn't recover. I could feel it at night. Mm. But your mind is, you know, tungsten steel mm. in your late 40s. And there's this very dangerous tipping point where your mind is stronger than your body and things mm. start to go ping because you can push it. So you need to temper that. But I still feel like, you know, the adventures will change a little bit in nature. I probably won't be doing... 60-day man-hauling journeys, but um, with the Kai Power, as long as I'm flying sensibly, I can my body can deal with the loads and the strain, uh, but I don't see – I'll be hanging my boots up anytime soon.
0: Is soon. That, and that's <clears throat> almost just for you and your
2: own continual testing of yourself so you are stronger? Is that sort of what it is? Yeah, well, I think, you know, without movement, uh, everything decays. You know, your muscles require movement for mm. volume and then their attachments to the bone require – you know, movement for strength and then the bone density decreases, we know if you're not active. So, yeah. you know, what we're talking about is getting humans active right through. Met this guy at the bar last night, Um, it was Dave, Dave, he's 70-something and he's just been pulled off the bench. He's a mining contractor, you know, working more in the back end of mines and they pulled him back because he's got 50 years' experience and uh, he just said, oh, I'm so happy coming out of retirement because... He felt like he was dying slowly. And, and, you know, I understand we do slow down with age, but I think the, the Japanese concept of ikigai doesn't have a retirement stamp mm. on it. You know, your purpose is till the grave, mm. you know, no matter what that purpose is any given day. Uh, for the Australian mm. mindset, our pioneer spirit um, and our drive and our grit, we, you know, our soldiers are known to be the best on planet Earth. Uh, uh, entrepreneurs like, like John are some of the most tenacious on planet Earth. And to keep that alive, we have to get this concept into our young people that purpose is important, persistence is important, and passion we haven't even touched on yet. You know, mm. that that's another key vital ingredient that gives you rocket fuel in any endeavour.
1: And there's so many doors that just can't be unlocked without those elements. Mm. Like, you know, you can't you can read the book, you can watch the movie, but you, you, you're never gonna have that book or movie about you or you're never gonna experience what the people in that that story experience. Like, yeah. there's so much that you need the passion, you need the purpose, you need that. So, I always think that the kind of person who says, Oh, one day I want to sit on that beach and I want to drink cocktails and, you know, mm. that's it for the rest of my life. It's generally the per- kind of person that's never going to be in a position to be able to do that because we don't want to switch off. We don't want to stop.
0: Well, I, uh, my parents are a perfect example of that. They, they reached that point where they were able to, they lived in Thailand. They were having the relaxing cocktails on the beach in ta- on a, in a Tropical fucking paradise every day of their life, and even they were getting bored of it. Yeah, because they needed something. You need something else. You need purpose, tr- passion, drive, and passion is something I'm very passionate uh, <laughs> about. Um, finding that passion and and it's constantly evolving because it doesn't necessarily mean what you started out uh, passionate about isn't what you're going to end up being. So, um, I'm interested in your ideas on passion because that is one of the
2: three P's. What was it? Persistence. Purpose, purpose and passion. passion Yeah, and we can confuse purpose and passion Because they, they do go hand in glove mm. uh, But I've met people with great purpose Who've lost their passion mm. So, you know, it's a horrible place to be Because you feel this shame loop going on As, oh, I need to be saving the world Or I need to be reducing plastic in the ocean Or whatever their purpose is But I don't have a love for it anymore And then that generally means That you're probably strayed from your purpose And you need to relook at it Or you need to to look at the way you're doing it and change it so for me uh, with a lot of our young vets if they've come out of a clinic or a hospital alongside a vet that has lost their love for the game it's like a virus it, it infects these young vets and then we get them in and they're negative they're talking death over their day-to-day work this is shit that you know they they see the negatives and then I'll come in and reset them and go okay Let's just really break this down. I don't want to make your purpose complicated. Your purpose in life is to reduce pain. Just make that really simple. Any animal that comes in, whether it's got a broken tooth, broken leg, skin infection, bloody blocked anal gland, whatever it is, your purpose for putting your boots on in the morning is to reduce pain. Now, your passion comes from doing that in the best way possible, having the best toys, the best clinic, the best training, the best attitude, you want that client to come in and have what I call a voila moment every time they come in. And the voila moment came from last year being up in northern Norway. We ordered a bottle of wine from a young bloke who just looked like he, he would rather be somewhere else. Mm. and He, he plonked his bottle of wine on the table, poured out a pretty mediocre rosé. Sarah drank it and was like, yeah, that was pretty crap. And the whole experience was pretty low-key. Mm. But that's Norwegian hospitality. They, they don't really get excited about it. They're good at other things six weeks later we're in the south of france same question can we have a rosé please a guy about the same age 19 20 years of age just got so excited he's looking at Sarah looking at me going there's five wineries within 2k here i'm going to get you the one that i think is the best so this is the one that i would drink it's you know he noted why he liked it went out the back came back with his chill bottle poured a little bit into a glass and then was waiting with the bottle hovering while Sarah tasted it she looked at him gives him the that's beautiful. And he slams it on the table, yells out voila at the top <laughs> of his voice, and does like a spin. And it was like a theatrical performance. Yeah. And you know, like he, he didn't spend a lot more calories than the Norwegian guy. Yeah. Had the same result in physically, mm. but we never forgot him. And I realized, okay, this is what we need to teach these guys in our veterinary game. You want every single interaction to be a voila moment. They mm. you want those people to know that know what your purpose is and your passion is to sort their problem out whatever it is and it doesn't matter whether you're selling insurance widgets you know whatever you're doing creating a podcast if it's done with passion and you can't fake passion it, it cannot be the human spirit knows immediately when you've got a salesman working you and faking passion um, you can't fake it but if it's there it's the most powerful thing on earth mm. and that's uh, jim carrey said something that goes along
0: those lines of the, the, the impact that we can have on others is the most valuable currency we have. And I totally agree because yeah, the yeah. the uh, the environment that we create around us um, it has an impact on my, my child, my friends, my parents, everyone around us. Even that, that person in the shopping aisle that maybe I've had a bad day and they can't m- get in front of me or something like that. If I have a bad interaction with them, it's not only going to affect them, it's going to affect me. So like the positive impact we can have on the people surrounding us is... It is prob- it is the most valuable currency we have.
2: I yeah, agree. and I think the other thing to remember is we, we generally um, you know, I lo- I love this proverb where it's talking about um, the world of a miser becomes smaller, the world of a generous person gets larger. And like, yeah, whether that's generous in, in finance or giving or philanthropy, which I know John's big on, or it's generous in giving time. And I, I you know, I learnt... Uh, when getting involved with the tsunami, probably one of my big life changes was uh, 2004, 2005, that uh, tsunami that hit the Achenese coast up in northern Indonesia. Yeah. Uh, My folks lived in Indonesia for a long period of time, so I spoke fluent Indonesian, and within three days of the tsunami hitting, I'm on ground zero helping. And I did interview after interview after interview over a thousand interviews from medicine, medicines demand who were patching people up and and you know helping survivors, and I learnt from that that people actually, when they lose everything, when the world's gone to shit, they do not care about stuff. There wasn't one person, and these are poor people anyway. Mm. They they won't care about their motorbike or their their thatch hut, their fishing boat, all that they. Concerned about was relationship, family, and friends. And I I came away from that going, I'm going to try and make sure that I don't rush into changes, no matter how busy I am. That if somebody asks me something, or if they want to uplink, or they just want time or encouragement, that I will try and remember those interviews way back in Arche and go, I'm going to give you time because my world gets bigger when I share things i've learned and my world gets bigger when i'm generous so i'm going to give you time
1: it doesn't sound like uh, too many people on the ground cared like about much about anything if they're letting a vet fix them up (laughs) 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 it's it's this this concept of a great charity that i heard it's like Doctors without diplomas, you know, it's similar to the border yeah. ones, but it's just people who are just willing to give it a crack. Yeah, 100%. yeah. They, they
2: just wondered why I kept trying to uh, examine them up the back. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's normally where we start. That's talent. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so I'm interested uh, in a couple more of your tracks because, um, and I don't know how much time you got, you guys. What are we going? What do you got? Yeah. It's, it's oh yeah, yeah. Softer. Half hour. Yeah, 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 easy. Um, <coughs> specifically, the the one. So I I, I was. Well informed that you were a polar uh, adventurer, uh, but I didn't realize these desert um, adventures that you'd been part of. Uh, specifically, that Sahara one, which sounds incredible, um, dodging landmines and whatnot. But you've also done the, uh, the the Simpson
2: Desert. Yeah, well, the Simpson was like a. It was my buddy who stood me up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Johnny, Johnny was in the Simpson on the other side uh, on Lake Eyre. Yeah, and uh, the second attempt. Um, kind of morphed into an attempt because it was meant to be to go have a beer with Johnny in the desert, but then COVID intervened and they wouldn't let me across. Or then they said, if you go across, you're not coming back. Yeah. And I had my dog, Lily, who uh, was getting older. And, um, you know, I'm like, I, I, I need to go and do this. So I had everything that I needed to, you know, the buggy, the kites with a with support team. So I rang Johnny and said, hey, they're not going to let me cross the border. We're going to try and do another crossing uh, attempt. And it failed largely because of the, the border crossing. We got to the Northern Territory border and g- couldn't cross it. Uh, so second time in 11 years we scarpered. But I learned so much that then September last year, uh, a couple of mates put together another vehicle. And this was a solo supported. So um, you just physically couldn't carry the weight of the water on the buggy and have it move with wind power. Mm-hmm. So the boys would go ahead and make camp and then I'd spend the whole day dragging this bloody thing or flying kites to get up and over these 650 dunes. Yeah. And it, it's a beautiful desert. Like, it is magical. Um, John's walked through there. It's, it's just this tangy uh, orange, like you can't describe the sunsets. You get this purple haze. Uh, the stars are unbelievable. It is one of Australia's great wildernesses, but it is brutal to cross. Like it just, you don't get wind. Mm. Um, when they've had fires through, the the trees will become very hard, but then snap at the base. So they they basically act like uh, scimitars as you're kiting at speed through, will, will just pierce straight through your body. Mm. So you're wearing body armour to stop these uh, ironbark bloody skewers pin, pinning you to the sled. And um, I've had... Uh, like a snake thrown from the front wheel straight into my lap and I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, I haven't so far. It's probably a a taipan out there, I would say. Yeah. uh, he was as scared of me as I was of him. Yeah, but yeah. I thought he was going to bite me on the deck and then <laughs> <laughs> kill me. Oh, have, you seen, have you seen that footage of the guy
1: who? Um, yes, who, uh, I got myself in a you know a bit of a spot the, here when he got pulled up by the cops. No, no. Uh, this guy's just out. Um, I think he was changing. Oh, he was, oh, it was out up, his, up his pants, and it was up his jeans. What? Right? And so he's got a um, a, a set of like oh, he's a cable ties, something like this, yeah. and, he's, and he's tied off so it can't get up because he's like, oh, I thought it was going to crawl up and bite me on the jewel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's got this snake right up in there, and I think it was a... Um,
2: oh, was Black it? snake. Yeah, or yeah, brown snake. Brown snake. Brown Solid snake. snake
1: na- <sighs> nasty, nasty thing. Fuck. And so he's like, I'm just going to rip her out. So he's doing all this with one hand because he's filming. Yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm just going to go one, two, three, and rip it out. And one, two, three. Rips it out, throws it. He's like, oh, Jesus. Oh. Fuck. Calls this... Decent-sized snake straight out of his pants. Oh, my God. uh, With a nice Australian accent. (laughs) No wonder we've got such a good reputation overseas. Yeah. Um,
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that desert has got a lot of challenges. But September last year, 650K and, you know, amazingly managed to cross. But, I mean, with wildlife, that's something that's always created uh, issues. And over a number of journeys... Uh, bears have become a bit of a problem for us. And when Simon and I were crossing Greenland, we would sleep very lightly in a thin tent with a gun between us, a big 308. And I was praying that the headline would not be vet shoots polar bear, you know, the last dodo bird in the wilderness. Um, But it was either that or, or, you know, you had to be ready to do that because they do come through tents and they will hunt. The reason I couldn't do that journey solo is the Greenland um, authorities will not let you travel solo because a, a single human being will attract a bear to track him immediately or her. Yeah. Uh, two men, yeah, he'll think twice about it. But we we did have a, a moment there where we saw a bear paw print and that's as close as we got, thankfully, mm. in Greenland. But, I mean, this thing was the size of a dinner plate. So oh, the size of...
0: The tension in, your own, in yourself... Trying to avoid bears, trying to like a tent—it's well, not going to stop anything, is it? Oh, it's well, you, stressful.
1: You've you've had a bit of a closer interaction than a footprint with a bear, though. Oh yeah, 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 and that's why
2: yeah. I think going into this, uh, the tail end of the Project Zero, we're right up in bear country, Svalbard, where we're heading has more polar bears per square meter than <sighs> anywhere on Earth. So we've got to we've got to learn to be comfortable with them. But I, I do have a bit I'm of a sure, I'm
1: not sure if I'm camping in a place where they measure per square metre the bear nah, population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's crawling <laughs> with them. But I mean,
2: the first bear that we really had a, a scare with uh, was in Alaska. We had a journey there where Katali, my son, and I were partnered together to try and do a transit of the Brooks Range, which, if, imagine Alaska is a bit like New Zealand, it's got this spine of mountains down the middle. Yeah. Uh, the summit of that is a, is a lake called Summit Lake, we got landed by an aircraft on there and then you're losing altitude over 350 kilometres coming down waterfalls and rapids and, and uh, we were to climb a mountain called Mount Dunarac. Um We ended up canning the climb because I lost communication, rolled over in a rapid and flooded the sat phone. and then on day 10 we were attacked by a big Kodiak grizzly uh, who I think in all of my encounters with wildlife was the most terrifying um, yeah. And you know, we've had, I've had sharks hit me from behind. I've had lion, uh, nearly hit a daughter of mine, um, you know, following her back from the toilets in Botswana. Um, and this is a lion that we found out had killed someone the previous year. Fuck. So we've had some pretty serious encounters with predators. And this thing was a factor of 10 times more scary than anything. And we came around the corner, both of us in a kayak, an inflatable kayak drifted around and saw this bear feeding about two hundred metres off the bank and he's eating berries and he looked like a big cuddly kind of rabbit, you know, huge but mm. probably, you know, the size of a Honda Civic, really. And then I, I whispered to Kit, Hey, grizzly, grizzly. And then so we're holding our position in the current. We're probably twenty metres off the bank. And then he stands up to full height and, and no kidding, I reckon he was eight and a half, nine foot tall uh so broad through the chest like i'm like holy crap you know these thoughts that you could you could fight off a bear or, oh. or you know <laughs> have any chance we're, we're just gone yeah like i did not ever want to go hand to hand with this guy and then he went from being mildly interested to just psychotic um and i've watched online if you go on youtube and look at bear charges they they will do this kind of shuffle and then present, which is a mock charge, to show you how big they are and how scared they are, scary they are. And at that point, you're meant to raise your hands and make yourself look big and, mm. and don't increase the distance because that'll invite a proper charge. Yell and scream, bang pots and pans, fire a flare, whatever you can, mm. and then get your bear spray ready. This guy went from standing up to full charge, committed to kill, uh, like within a millisecond. And I reckon in half a second, he'd covered the 200 meters of bank there was stone coming out the back he hit the water just as he hit the water and my brain's going the river will protect us he won't swim i don't know why i thought bears couldn't swim but that's a fallacy this guy could swim faster than Fuck. and he'd covered probably the distance from the bank to me in about three strokes and then literally 10 feet from me just hit like a a wall and we've got this lady back home called heather clark who whenever i go somewhere i go heather you're on mm. and she's my we call her a prayer warrior so she she woke up in the middle of the night um you know it's daylight where we were and just jeff's gonna die and Fuck. boom she's on her knees this bear hit something like i would say uh, a labrador running into a glass window Boom, he he stops and exhales all his breath in a spray that hit me in the face. That's how close we were. I could smell fish and berries and I'm I'm fumbling with a flare gun on my chest and realise at the time I'm going to die, I'm going to get torn to pieces in front of my son and then more than likely he's going to get into the fray and we're both going to get severely injured, drowned or killed. Anyway, this bear stopped and I just whispered to Kit, lift your paddle and we just lifted our paddle and let the river take us gently, which is completely the wrong thing to do mm. to increase your distance. But this bear just, he looked like he'd been hit with a stun gun. Wow. And he walked back to the bank and then followed us as we drifted around the corner. And then it sort of came to a shale area where we were in a foot deep water. He could have walked straight out and got us. Mm. And then we get pushed around the corner. And both were just in shock. Wow. <sighs> And then that night you have to set the tent up again, and you can hear bears walking on the cobbles on the the river stones. Fuck stands. that! Yeah, just. Not what good. Is, what
0: is, is bear spray going to do anything really? Like, uh, what, really? I, like is, what is what is bear is spray? Mania. Is it
2: like pepper spray for bears? Yeah, you know, it's actually made from capsicum, so it, you know what you would eat in your hot sauce. That's that's what bear spray <coughs> is. Uh, but it is 75% of the time it's effective, but I get the feeling we would have been the 25% had I been able to get it. But it, it happens so fast that there is just no chance that you could have halted that bear's forward momentum. Even, even you know, the thought of having a Colt 45 on your chest, uh, you'd have to hit centre of mass three or four times to stop that.
1: And it's happening at a speed mem- where you just can't do that. You just
2: wouldn't do that. Like
1: so this, you've got such an inedible smell. So horrific. All right. Yeah, and he's e- just e- gone. E- even a hungry, ravaging bear go oh, fuck that. Well, it could be that. That's rough. That's rough. I might, meet, I might
2: meet a poodle on the beach of the Gold Coast that we've had to do an anal gland squeeze two years before, and he walks up, he's all happy, and then he smells you and goes, recoils like the bear. He's like, that's a vet. So just, he might, he might have just realised I was a vet. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck my uh, our cap for the YouTube watches our camera for me and you for the uh, for me and John is off so I apologize it's uh, a bit of you get my ugly face yeah so you're on for most of it but um oh, I'll figure that out later on but uh yeah mate that's that's incre- that idea that you are <laughs> like being followed and stalked by bears and polar bears that just seems like a tent I don't know what it does like um is there, is there any other – what do you do if you're faced with that? The flare, is it
2: um – Oh, well, it's so hard because we're, we're trying to tell the story. So the vessel that we're on is is Nanook. Nanook is the Inuit word for the king of all bears. So mm. in their culture when they would pray for the hunt, they would pray to Nanook to give them grace and give them a good fish or a good seal hunt. And the reality is if Nanook – is the canary in the coal mine. Like mm. if the if the polar bear is happy, the whole planet's happy. Mm. At the moment, the polar bear's fishing grounds, it's eating grounds, hunting grounds are getting diminished because the shoreline decreases as the ice retreats. Nanuk is starving, he's unhappy. So the whole of Project Zero is to try and find a way that we can reverse that cycle and get Nanuk happy. But in the so doing, we put ourselves into his realm mm. and that invites us to be prey but it also brings that horrible opportunity that you could end up in a position where you've got to kill a bear to protect the greater mass. And and I'm struggling with that one. I mean, I I know it firsthand because another explorer, Carl Alvey, um, a British guy I know, he was guiding clients from east to west Mm. not that long ago across Greenland and they they saw a bear tracking them as they were climbing the glacier and they're about 30 kilometres in the first night. Mm. From the coast, and the bear camped about a kilometre away. They could see him through the telescope, or, or you know binoculars. <coughs> and uh, he rings national parks and says, "Hey, I, I've got a bear that looks like it might be following me." Uh, and they said, "Oh, how far are you from the coast?"
0: Mm.
2: And they, he said, "30k." He said, "No, that's fine. If you if you walk another 20 to 30k tomorrow, you'll be 60k, and that's too far for him to hunt along the shoreline." Uh, he, will n- he, w- he won't follow you. Yep. So they do 30k, they're setting up, bearing in mind it's 24-hour daylight this time of year, yeah, yeah, yeah. setting up camp, he puts his clients to bed in their tent and then he's out scanning the horizon, sure enough, 500 metres away, this bear is there. And he's like, oh crap, he's now followed us for 60k, rings national parks and they go, okay, if he's 60k from the ocean, he will kill. He cannot get back. Without killing. So one of you will die or the bear will die. Fuck. He says, no, surely you can do something. I do not want to shoot a bear. I've got clients here. You know, the whole thing is to teach them the love of these polar wastes. I don't want to shoot a bear in front of my clients. Yeah. Like, what the hell are you thinking? So they said, listen, we'll, we'll send a chopper out tomorrow and we'll shoot him back to the coast. So in the morning they get up. The bear's now 200 meters from camp he's getting more and more cocky. Mm. Chopper comes in and it shoes him back to the coast. So he's shuffling and they shoot him about five kilometres and they're staying in the air and they watch him start to follow his own tracks home. So they radio through to Carl and, and say, hey, you're fine, get moving now. He's heading back to the coast. So they do another 25k that day. They're now nearly 90k inland <laughs> and he sets up camp with a real heavy heart grabs the gun grabs the binoculars and sure enough the bear's back so he calls national park and they're like well you can take the risk but he's coming into your tent tonight Mm. or you go up there and you you put one in him there's something wrong with him he's either got a broken tooth or Mm. he's aged and he can't hunt um so we would be shooting him anyway and he just said he struggled so hard with it and he had to walk up to that bear and end its life. Um, so for me, I don't ever want to get in that position because obviously I've got the veterinary: yes, do no harm, ease pain, tell the story, improve their outcome. That doesn't look real good if Jeff the vet plugs a, you know, one of the dodo birds that laugh.
1: But that's the that that's the reality of being out there. It's um, on the camel trek with. Fell in love with camels, obviously, along that path. I never really had any history with them or I didn't come into that camel (coughs) trek for a love of camels. That was grown during the trek. And um, I keep having to prepare myself mentally. I'm probably going to get a bull camel attack at some stage on this trek. And at the peak of love for for the animals, I have to then go through and uh, have my first bull camel attack. And it wasn't how I expected. I was expecting this emotionally... Uh, devoid moment because adrenaline would kick in and I'd just do the right thing and I'd protect my crew Mm. but the way it ended up happening was uh, obviously a a very a moment that was set to teach me so we had a camel that came in uh, to camp quite early in the morning and we're camped out near this waterhole so obviously come in had a bit of a feed and then uh, a bit of a drink and then come out and decided to just hang out with us for the day and this was a beautiful bull Mm. he was it'd been a good season out there muscly great shape and he was letting me get up to about a meter and a half from him so he was slowly getting closer up to him i was so tempted to throw a rope around him and Mm. like bring him along but as we got later and later on in the day he just started you know, getting a bit feisty with my boys. Then he started attacking and I was shooing him away. I did mm. some warning shots. And it got to that point of, you know, as the sun was starting to drop, I knew that if I didn't take care of him, mm. um, I'd wake up probably without one of my boys. Because I, I had the bulls around. I had to have one of my boys tied up yeah to a tree, tethered to a tree. So they're like tied up, defenceless against this wild yeah. bull. <coughs> so I had to make the call. and So I had to... First camel I killed was uh, at shoot, was one that I had spent the whole entire day getting to know. (sighs) And that's brutal. I was like, that's not the experience that I. uh, And I think it's
2: easy, you know, for people listening or, or someone, you know, with a real animal bent to judge that action and go, well, if you weren't there, you wouldn't have to shoot them. But the reality is, we can't protect the places we don't love. And if people don't see it and understand it, they don't fall in love with it. So fall in love with Australia's deserts or fall in love with the polar regions, we need human beings that can get down there and get the images and the stories so that we fall in love with them and protect them. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that comes with the risk of um, interactions that, that end like this. Yeah.
0: Um, <clears throat> yeah that's that, that sort of stuff is beyond me mentally, how you deal with that sort of stuff in a tent trying to trying to sleep. You
2: you don't sleep well. And I think you take it away, you know, whether it's a sailing journey where you're lying as a skipper listening for the anchor to move or change or whether you're waiting for a bear to come through the side of the tent. Mm. You know, I've had a mate, um, Eric, have a bear come through. Sarah, his sister, and him were asleep doing a northwest crossing uh, through the northwest passage above Canada and they had a bear come through and slam Mm. her on the chest. And completely winged her a an immobiliser. Mm. And then, uh, you know, he had to go out. He couldn't find the gun. He's got thick bottled glasses. Mm. All he could find was an alloy shovel and he cracked this bear across the head mm. while it was trying to kill his sister. Fuck. And um, it just stood up, a nine-foot-tall bear, and he's washed his right shoulder move back into a swing. And realised he, he was going to die. Sarah had recovered from her winding, mm. found the gun, and came in behind the the bear and fired a solid in the air. Like a solid's a twelve gauge round, but it's 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 like the size of a ball ball yeah. bearing. Yeah, and it's designed for maximum stopping power at speed. But you've got a, you know, you've got to wait till they're on you. Mm. Um, and Eric's yelling at Sarah, going, "What the?" you missed, you missed. And she's leaning over him around the bear going, I don't want to kill him, I just want to scare him. And Eric's like, kill him now or he's going to kill me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, the bear's watching this argument like a game of tennis. Mm. And he eventually um, just shuffles off and he goes through a tripwire that they'd set up with four flares on either corner of the tent that he stepped over delicately, so he smelt it, stepped his nine put yeah. tall frame gently over this thing, attacked Sarah, and then on the way out set off two of the flares. One of them fell and burned a big hole in the side of the tent. The whole day they spent repairing the tent with the bear about 300 metres away just watching. Fuck. So the benefit of kites is that you can outpace the bear and get away. So they did 150 kilometres that day mm. but still slept uneasy. Yeah. What happens if the wind stops? You just have to carry your
0: sled? What does it the go there?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's always a hard thing because your, your natural tendency is to keep moving and make some mileage. But on the last couple of crossings, I realised it was better just to sleep and reserve calories. So you almost go into a hibernation state and wait wow. for the wind to come back. So And then when the wind's back, you push for 22 hours. Mm. Don't, don't waste it.
0: Yeah. And before we finish, I want to touch on a story that you told last night, which is fucking... Incredible slash disgusting uh, with your
2: be- and you touched on it in the last part the belly freezing. Yeah, and you know, this this winding back, if we talk about uh, things that go wrong in the wilderness, generally are not just one thing, mm. it's generally what we call a domino effect. So, winding back to how I, I got frostbite on the belly was um, I'd, I'd been in that first killer storm with Fire Cell, the Frenchman, and then I managed to get past him. About three days later we got hit by another storm and I was so frustrated with with so many days not making distance Mm. that when the storm came to an end I wasn't patient enough. I should have waited another six to 12 hours. The wind was starting to moderate but we were still getting some 40, 50-knot gusts come through and the the base wind had gone down to about 25 knots. So I went out and I I put uh, a nine-metre kite up, buried it in in the snow ran 25 meter lines back to the sled connect clipped it to the side of the sled Mm -hmm. and then walked to the kite checked the lines and as i'm walking back to go and put my skis on and connect and take off i see on the horizon it looks like a thousand horses galloping towards me and i realize there's another front coming through Mm. and it was a 60 knot gust and i start sprinting to try and disconnect the kite from the sled because I realise if it hits the kite, it's going to self-launch and I'm going to lose everything. And it's similar to Sophie Madison talking about losing a camels last night. I I had that chill because I know what that feeling's like. The sled's got my sat phone, it's got my perb, it's got uh, my stove, my ability to keep warm. I'm going to die from exposure mm. and no one's going to know where I am because the tracker that they're tracking me on is taken off with a kite mm. laterally towards the antarctic ocean mm. so the gust passes me i'm probably five meters from the sled at this point hits the kite and the kite launches next minute the the sled is coming at me at about three mi- three meters uh, away at, at speed mm. but it, it's chest height and i have that split second option of ducking and and feeling no pain but then potentially dying of exposure or getting on and trying to control this thing with four Kevlar lines that could cut your hand off whizzing mm. through the air at speed. So I jump and I get on top of the sled and next minute I'm I'm on the snow with the sled spinning madly with the boobs, the nipples kind of <laughs> dragging through the snow. Yeah. And uh, the only piece of metal on the sled capable of cutting lines is where the runner's attached to the bottom of the Kevlar. There's a tiny two mil gap mm. and... As the kite spins, I can feel it cutting through my thigh oh. and then it, it hits this metal piece and all four lines are just severed, boom. But in that moment, I've gone about two to 300 metres laterally just in these crazy circles and the centripetal force is threatening to rip me off the sled. I've got a knife on my thigh but I can't reach it because if I let go, I'm going to lose the sled. Uh, so i'm fast thinking how the hell am i going to get this thing under control without a knife anyway it sorted itself out but you know after getting over the terror of that i put the tent up and waited another day the next day i got out and the perfect kite for that day's condition would have been the nine meter So I then had to choose either a six metre and the sleds were too heavy, I couldn't move or go to an 11 metre. The problem with the 11 metre is I had to fly it really high and it kept catching on my jacket and pulling the jacket up uh, and exposing the midsection. So on the first day, I got a little bit of frost damage and okay, i got to be more careful. The second day, um, I just got really focused on making miles. Making really good miles was, was probably out there for eight or nine hours. At the end of the day, I, I dropped the kite and felt something metallic hit my belly. And I looked and the, the hook on the kite harness had hit a completely frozen midsection. It looked like somebody had strapped a stake across that <sighs> section below your pubis and the, the belly button. And I, I just, with panic, realised I'd completely frozen the entire muscle, skin and fat of my midsection And uh, I rang the American base, got some medical advice on how to reperfuse it, and they they told me how to to re-warm it slowly, don't do it quickly. And it meant that I minimised the area of cell death to probably, say, two playing cards lying laterally across your belly. But then over the next four weeks, that just rotted, and every day I'd have to cut bits of flesh off, and it would ooze into the bandages. And I was running out of bandage material and tearing up clothing to pack underneath the the harness but the the thing was um i was at that point doing this thing rolling the clock where i was pushing for 16 18 22 hours a day with this harness on and losing fluid the whole time through this belly yeah um the americans were asking for daily photos and and at one point they said listen you're done Mm. you cannot continue with this injury in the state it is and i just said hey you send a plane out i'm not getting on it Mm. i'm crossing this continent uh, and you know that's the kind of pig-headedness that we get when we're attached to purpose mm. so the injury was minor because i could i could imagine women with their breast ripped off and going through chemo that i'd met at home mm. and to me cutting bits of my own flesh off and driving forward putting a harness over the top just felt like you know hey well this is part of me connecting to the very purpose that i'm working for mm. um And it was another kind of awakening to go, wow, okay, if we get purpose aligned with hardship, uh, we have rocket fuel, absolute rocket fuel, and, and this is what we're passing on to our young folk.
1: Mm. And also advice On how to get rid Of that spare tyre It's a, quite an extreme way <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's not good though Because
2: I can never I can never get A six pack now I can get a six pack Out the top And then you have This like muffin top Of damage oh, It dro- looks bloody awful I,
1: I dropped down to 78 odd kilos On the camel track <laughs> And I can show you A photo It's <laughs> like It's called skinny fat like, <laughs> like, I, oh, I know it, it. it I know was, it well <laughs> It's terrible Like I was like there's nothing to see under here. Within two months of coming back, I'd put on 15 kilos because it was a shit show underneath.
0: Yeah, man, Great. that's um, <clears throat> that's an incredible journey. Um, I feel like there's so much more we could talk about, but I'm obviously conscious of your time. Um, so before we finish, uh, is there anything you want to plug uh, coming oh, yeah, up? Yeah. Obviously,
2: uh, Project Zero and absolutely Project Zero. So either my Instagram, Dr. Jeff Wilson with a G, mm-hmm. uh, or Project zero on instagram is uh freaking awesome Mm -hmm. and then www.projectzero.earth uh that'll have the live tracker it'll have daily blogs it'll have the live webcam and uh, honestly i challenge you if you are having a shit day at work Mm. uh, get on the webcam Mm. uh there'll also be this uh really cool thing that we call the pivotel mood board so pivotel provided the, the starlink network and the the data that we need to get those webcams working yep for me to, to generate a culture of kindness under extreme hardship, uh, every day we'll have a, you know a crew note, mm. and it might be Krusty, you're an amazing bloke. Or it's not going to be you know Dalai Lama type yeah. thinking, it's adventure thinking, you know. But if you're having a tough day, get on that crew webcam and have a look on the right right hand side. Hopefully, there's something that resonates with you in your day and uh, helps you just refocus and think about adventure. I love that,
0: mate. That's uh, very good. We've persisted through some of our own issues today with the camera, the fucking electrician, <laughs> uh, the roadworks outside. like. But uh, yeah, a very good episode. Really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you very much for joining us, mate. Hey, thanks so and much. And thank much, you, John, as
2: well. You, you did all right. <laughs> a good stand in. Perfect. And, and well Jeez. done. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome.